Today's reading comes from Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated. Thanks. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Praise the Lord. It's great to see you guys. For those of you who are new at Mac Ave, man, it's great to see you. Welcome. We love you. Jesus loves you. We hope the Word of God mends your heart if it's broken. So today's title as we're going through the book of Ephesians, which we do at a church, we go verse by verse, line by line, sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, start to finish. Today's sermon is called, Are You a Were or Still an Are? And I've got to apologize to you guys. I'm going to slander the American language for a while today. All to make a point. So please, if you're a... English major, I'll apologize to you afterwards in person. So I want to set the stage for the context of what we're talking about, which is always important. When we just dive in and we're just looking at three verses, it's critical to know what's come before, it's critical to know what's going after. So we've got a full and broader perspective. Last week, Pastor talked about uh, the end of the first chapter of Ephesians. And there's a number of things that happen in those last couple of verses. But the main thing is Christ is exalted. He's been seated at the right hand of God where no high priest has ever been before and no high priest ever sat down. They always had to stand because it was an ongoing thing because of man's continual sin. But Christ paid the debt in full. And God gave him all power and authority and dominion. And Pastor kind of talked to us about Christ has been made the head of the church. And he went through and said, as a body, you and I can lose a finger and still function. We could lose an arm. We could lose both arms. We could lose our, all of our limbs. And we would still function. But we cannot lose a head. That ends life. And then comes our scriptures. And then I'm just going to tell you the first two words for chapter 2, verse 4. But God. Man, who's ever got that next week is going to rock the house. So when you think of the word but, what happens with the word but in a sentence? I want to exercise but... I want to tithe, but I want to forgive, but. So but just totally nullifies what came before it, which is what we're going to talk about today. So why is the set of scriptures that we're looking at today sandwiched between these two things of joy, Christ's exaltation 
as all-powerful, all-dominion, and our head. And then we're in our trespasses, but God. We believe that God is very specific, and he doesn't mince words. So the scriptures that we're going to look at today are placed specifically there for your and my benefit, for our growth, for Christ's exaltation, and so that you and I would grow. In these three verses today, the word were or previously is used five times. And I do need to apologize to you guys. Up here is going to be ESV. When I read stuff, it might be out of the Holman translation that I've been reading through, and I've just gotten used to that, and my sermon was written before pastor asked me to change that out, so please forgive me. It'll be up here, but I might speak a little bit differently about it. Were and are, before and after, define and refer to a specific time period that's separated by a catalyst that alters them. I was single, now I'm married. Catalyst being the wedding night. I was a student, now I'm employed. What's the catalyst? Graduation. I got a diploma now. You guys see, we're talking a very specific time frame here. Paul saying, you were. Moses were an Egyptian celebrity, a ruling class member, a wandering Hebrew. Now he are God's instrument of deliverance. Now I want you guys to pay attention because this is important. David were a shepherd. The least of Jesse's sons. He wasn't even invited when Samuel came to town to anoint the next king of Israel. Think of how, like, he's insignificant. Were and are. Israel were a bunch of wanderers, right? Little tiny band of misfits. Now they are God's blessing to the nations and his chosen people. Mary were a peasant girl. Now she are, we don't even use her name, Jesus' mom, right? Saul was a Gamaliel educated, high-ranking, persecutor of the way believers, side-of-the-road convert. Now he are a God-fearing, scripture-writing missionary. I think some of you guys have heard my testimony, and my testimony was very dramatic. Went to a Bible study. I thought I, thought I got it out what we were singing. <laughs> Said the sinner's prayer. Woke up the next morning, and my life was changed. It was changed. And when that happened, I told my friends, I'm not Matt anymore. I'm Matthew. I were, and I became an R. So in these scriptures we're going to go through, Paul reminds the Ephesians of their were path. They walked according to the ways of the world. What are the ways of the world? 
concerning character, me first. The scriptures talk about you want to be a servant. Scriptures talk about bearing the cross as a believer. About being dead to yourself in Matthew 20. Matthew 6, we're talking about values here and treasure. What did we value before when we were worse? Financial gain, notoriety, comfort. And what, 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 is, what does the scripture say? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. All these things shall be added to you. It tells you, go sell everything to buy the pearl of great price. Our values were changed. Our mindset, we thought a particular way. You know, Mike Fang offends me, I'm going to find a way to hurt him. So what do the scriptures say? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, not conformed to the mindset of the world. And I was thinking about this. Okay, we got what, 24 hours a day, sleep eight, you got 16. Of those 16, if, and this is a big if, if we give the Lord an hour a day of devoted prayer and time, that's 15 hours of us being influenced by whatever else, friends, colleagues, radio, TV, Time Magazine, Our minds need to be transformed. He says that they walked in submission to the ruler who exercises authority. And it doesn't seem like we talk about this much in Christian circles, but Satan rules this world. He has some authority here. Does God got him on a leash? Absolutely. But guess what? He has authority here. He had authority over the words. When they went before. 2 Corinthians 4 4 says they're blinded by the God of this world. They can't see. That was you and I. 2 Corinthians 11 3 talks about being deceived even as Eve was as she listened to Satan tempt her. Did God really say? Of course he didn't. God's jealous of you. John 8 44 speaks of Satan as being a father of lies. Our father before. Says he exercised power because guess what? We were his slaves. Colossians 1.13 says we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Were, are, before, after. Catalyst that separates those. They walked according to their fleshly desires. Mark 9. You guys remember this story? Jesus comes walking up and the disciples are in a little huddle talking. And all of a sudden, oh, they see him and they turn around. Hey, Jesus, what's happening? He's, oh, what were you guys talking about? Oh, nothing. He says, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? You want to be great? Be a servant of all. Die to yourself, serve others, love others, as I've shown you the way. Matthew 19, rich young ruler. I mean, envision this in your mind. He comes walking up to Jesus and says, man, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And you know he's got his resume in his back pocket. 
Jesus starts listing these things off, done. I got this baby nailed. And he's waiting to get a high five from Christ, right? And then what does Jesus say? Oh, Jesus has got discernment that it appears there's an idol in his life of money. So he says, man, sell all you have, give to the poor. Can, can you imagine the look on this guy's face? Man, he's ready to pull the resume out, have Jesus sign off on it. And, and he goes away brokenhearted because he had an idol he was unwilling to give. You know, Proverbs talks about adulterous woman. And man, I'll tell you what, I feel sorry for myself and every man here and I guess women too in some measure, when you think of advertising and the vulgarity of it. And there's ads that I see that it doesn't even make any sense. I can see in some things, but there's some stuff they sell, Campbell's Soup or something that, like, you're kidding me, right? And our minds are bombarded by that daily. Lastly, Paul talks that they walked as children under wrath because they were. We were. Not all people who live in this world are God's children. And I didn't stutter or stumble when I said that. Not everyone is God's child. Everyone is made in His image. And that's why we value them. That's why we see dignity and purpose in them. But that doesn't happen until they become transformed by Christ. What we see in every situation we just discussed is a catalyst that changed the was to am. And that's God himself. Do you see in the verses above and all the examples that before God they were one thing, but once God intervened, they become something very different. Jesus is talking, if you guys have heard of Nicodemus, he was a Pharisee, real learned guy, intelligent dude, PhD, sharp guy. Comes to Christ at night, Jesus talking to him, Jesus tells him he's got to be born again. And man, Nicodemus is like, how can I crawl in my mother's womb? What are you talking about? What he's talking about is a twice-born human that we see in this passage today from a were state before they met God to a now or our state where their lives have been transformed. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old were things have passed away. Behold, all things became new. Are. Verse 2, and you, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were. So we've just discussed this time frame distinction of we and our catalyst. 
and the conversion process. Now there's another clarifying point that Paul makes here. And man, like, please, please keep your eyes on me. Keep your ears to the Lord. I want you guys to hear what's going on here. In, in the beginning of the verse, Paul says, you. Who's the you? Ephesians, sorry. Oh, Ephesians. But greater than the Ephesians, who? Gentiles, non-Jews, everybody else, you and me. And then what does Paul do? He says, we too, referring to himself, but in broader context, the Jewish nation. You know, I don't think you and I can really grasp the significance of this and the cultural chasm that's between them is absolutely ginormous. Scripture's very clear about the opposing and distinct cultural separation and its importance relating to these two groups. pastor spoke a couple of weeks ago on the Good Samaritan, if you guys remember that. So I want to play out a little situation here, okay? You guys know the story, Jews walking down the street, gets mugged, left for dead, laying on the side of the road, a couple of guys come by, blow by him, Good Samaritan comes over, sees him laying there. So go walk through this, look at the little movie in your brain. He's walking over, and he sees this guy laying on the ground, and he bends down, and let's say he goes to roll him over to see if he can get a pulse or, you know, or his teeth kicked out or, or what's going on. Now let's just suppose that that's right when the, Samaritan, or the, the Jewish guy wakes up. He looks at the Samaritan, and what, what, what do you think would be the next thing? He'd spit in his eye. He'd say, are you trying to get the rest of what I've got on me? You Samaritan piece of trash? That was the context that we're looking at. So when Paul says, you and we too, he's very specific. Think of the woman at the well. Jesus and the disciples are walking. Jesus gets thirsty and tired, says, hey guys, go get some food. I'm going to hang here. Talks to the woman at the well. They come back and they're all like, what the heck is he doing talking to a Samaritan woman? We don't have any dealings with them. And Jesus says, man, I've got meat to do that you don't even know, and that's to do the will of the Father. And this, this next one's probably one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture. Jesus and the boys are hanging out. This gal comes walking up behind Jesus and says, hey, my daughter is demon-possessed. She needs healing. Would you please come heal her? And you know what the Bible says? Jesus ignored her. So much so that she's tapping the disciples on the shoulder, pushing them, poking them. I want to see them. Disciples come, man, Jesus, tell her to shut up and get out of here. So he decides instead of ignoring her, he's going to address her. And what does he say? He says, man, I got food, and it's for my family in Israel. It's not right for me to give the food that I've brought. And what does he call her? A dog. 
man. First he ignores her, then he calls her a dog. But the best part of the story is she's like, I don't give a rip, call me a dog. I'm a dog. I'll eat crumbs. And what does Jesus do? And I, again, in my mind, I imagine, I'm like, whoa. You know, he's ignoring her. And then he hears that. And he says, man, have at it. Your faith has accomplished what you came for. That was the animosity. A dog? Man, if in Mac... Well, I wouldn't go there. The examples used here are 2,000 years old, so I think it's hard for us to gain a comparative understanding. So I got a few ideas that might assist us. I hesitate strongly to use these because I don't want to come across as flippant or in a casual sense of their intensity. So if I blunder through this, if I trip over my tongue, by all means, talk to me. But give me grace on this, would you? From the 1700s on, this is black and white. Blacks and whites. What do whites do? Call blacks dogs, basically, right? That's the animosity that's here that Paul's talking about that he wants to dispel. You, we too. I mean, think of the KKK, the Ku Klux Klan, and the Black Panthers having a sit-down party together. Not going to happen. Now, might not be a perfect analogy, but you guys know this is the intensity of what Paul is dealing with culturally. You know, I, I'm a Republican, and I probably just dropped down 100 points in some of your guys' eyes, right? <laughs> but that's okay. But think about the squabbling, the ridiculous immaturity that's going on in the political climate today. So Paul says we too. And you know what the we too is? We are equals in our endeavors of dark disobedience. We are equals in our endeavors of dark disobedience is what Paul is saying. He's leveling the playing field. He's welcoming them as brothers and sisters where before Paul wouldn't even talk about them. Think of the thing when uh, Peter's upstairs praying, right? God lowers this uh, handkerchief, a bunch of animals on it. God says, hey, man, don't call unclean what I call clean. So then what happens? He goes to this guy's house. He walks in the house of a Gentile, and he says, hey, man, it's not even lawful. It's not even lawful for me to be here. Do you guys get a taste? Does your stomach hurt a little bit, like thinking about this? It's not a two-tiered message where the Gentiles come riding in on the coattails of the Jews. Paul says, man, we were both walking that path. Same wicked path. And our salvation lies in Christ alone. He's bringing racial, ethnic, social reconciliation here. But even more so, I mean, think about it. He's doing it in like a practical setting, right? Like blacks and whites, now we can be friends and happy together. That's a practical component. 
But there's two components here because there's a practicality of it. But there's the heavenly thing. Gentiles had no hope of salvation, right? And now he's saying, hey, guess what, baby? We in the same heavenly family. First, Second Corinthians, first chapter, talks about you and I being comforted in the midst of our struggles, our trials, our sickness, our fears, our worries. And it says for one reason alone. And that's so that we can comfort others in like affliction. You know, how many times have you found solace while you were in the middle of something when somebody comes alongside you and said, I was in debt. We couldn't afford a home. I didn't know how I was going to make it. I didn't have a job. You know, anyways, Paul cements the spiritual unity of a new heavenly family heritage, offering these Gentiles the handshake of fellowship. And then he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler who exercises authority over the lower heavens, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. We were by nature children of wrath, as the others were also. I see another thing happening here. I call like a duality of mindset, were and are. Remember earlier we were talking, um, our initial premise is that God is a God of clarity. He's efficient, doesn't waste time in words, but he's purposeful in all he does. And I see a couple of points here in Paul's discourse. He wants to remind them of their worth. And the reality is their lack of worth. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. He wants to remind them that prior to God's intervention, their natural bent was sin and trespasses. And man, please hear me, because these are really important. He wants to remind them that you're still a branch and you've not become the root. You're still a branch and you've not become the root the root. Another point is to prevent them from becoming pharisaically minded, whitewashed sepulchers, all arrogantly forgetting their depravity. If you guys remember the thing about the whitewashed sepulcher, Jesus talking to the Pharisees, and he basically said, yeah, you look really sharp on the outside, babes. Man, you are styling. But you're full of dead man's bones. Paul is trying to save the church at Ephesus from becoming that. He's reminding them, hey guys, you were bad. And this catalyst named Christ has come in and brought righteousness to you. And then I believe another thing is to train their mindset to be similar in nature and idea to Paul's statement when he is inclusive by saying we too, or we also. He's helping these converts, and listen to this, he's helping these converts to be guiding lights of welcomingness 
in darkness, a candle, okay? Not the flashlight shining in the eyes as an interrogator. See, there's helpful light, and then there's condemning light. Because he didn't want them to do that to others that were not gone through the were process. Because it's easy to do that. And church, hear me, we do this when we decide which sin we're going to condemn with diligent vehemence. Have we not done this to our shame and God's dishonor? We've done this with homosexuality. As a church, we have mishandled this thing. We have alienated a group of people who are no different than you and I. We've not done that with gluttony. We've not done that with greed and materialism. And I ask, is that because those are enjoyable to you and I, that we've accepted that? Paul is wanting to save them from doing that. Remember who you were. You are not a root. You are a branch. With these thoughts in mind, the new hope of an incredible magnitude was theirs in Christ. Now that's next week's verse, okay? Although our, vo- our verses today don't really get to celebrate the idea, the point remains the same. Paul reminds them that this catalyst that caused them to be were is in fact past tense. And a new are has become their reality. Now it's very clear from the scriptures that there are people who believe that they are believers and when they get to heaven, Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. And they're going to show them their list of accomplishments like the rich young ruler. Fortunately, he heard before and had an opportunity to repent. But there are going to be people that are going to get to heaven, going to pull out their resume. Hey, didn't we speak in tongues? Hey, didn't we bring healing? Hey, didn't we help the poor? Hey, didn't I move to Detroit in the 48214? And what does Jesus say? Man, never knew you. So my guess is that there are people in this church. There are maybe new people here. Old people here. Who think that you were a were, and you haven't gotten past that. You think that you were at one time a follower of Satan and that Christ came in and became that catalyst to bring you to be born again. Maybe that never really happened. Or maybe you've continued to choose to live a sinful life, being disobedient, ignoring the commands of Christ, not paying attention to your soul. And I'm talking to you. I'm talking to me. Check your heart as the scriptures warn us constantly. Is your life a light in the darkness? Or do you got the flashlight poked in somebody else's eyes pointing out their sin? Is your righteousness only on paper? 
or, it is it, or is it in the life that you lead? Are your finances the Lord's? Or are they yours? What's your appetite? Now, hear me very clear. I am not talking about those that are believers that are on the road of sanctification. These are two different things. I've struggled with one particular sin for 40 years. But I repent every time. I repent every time. And I ask for God's grace to not only forgive me, but to empower me. What I'm talking about is self-deception. Because your parents raised you in the church, you figure by osmosis, you've become a believer. Not the case. There have got to be some point in time where you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. I mean, man, such a cliche, but you know what? Jesus loves you guys. Jesus loves you. And he, like Paul, says, man, come on, welcome. Welcome into the kingdom of heaven. I offer you the free gift of grace. Because it says in Colossians, one of my favorite verses, and Pastor alluded it today, guess what? Satan had a little diary labeled Matthew Rojak that he had all my sins in, all the ordinances that were written against me, as the Scripture says. And he turned it over to the Lord. The Lord says, oh yeah, that's okay. That's been nailed to the cross, bud. And I've saved this young man for my glory, for my kingdom. So, man, I want to encourage you. Check your heart. If you're a believer, check your heart. Man, if you're struggling with that, come on up. Come on up now. Come on up afterwards. See me, see Pastor Leon, see Alex, see Nate, see your friend. Talk through this thing. Do not, do not leave this hanging. Guilt is good. Guilt is good because it leads us to repentance the kind of repentance that the Father brings as restorative to bring you and I to healthy, godly repentance that worketh life and not death. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you that you gave us the opportunity to be words. Thank you that, in fact, today is the day of salvation and that you are a great catalyst of change. Lord, I pray for the people here. Lord, may their ears not be stuffed up with things of the world. May their hearts not be enwrapped in the thorns of the cares of this world. But, in fact, may they be free to hear you, to be repentive, and unlike the rich young ruler who turned around and walked away, Lord, may we set our idols, our pride our prejudices, may we set them at the door. And may we walk di diligently on the road of sanctification that you've brought us to. In Jesus' name.